And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Good morning. You guys ready for this? Little Bible study. Grab your Bibles. Turn to the Gospel of Luke. We'll look at chapter 15 once again. Chapter 15, verses 20 through 32, certainty in a world of doubt. It's been our teaching series. This weekend's message title is Don't Miss the Party. Don't miss the party. Also grab your sermon notes out. Follow along there. Part of the intro. The kingdom of God is a party feast unlike you have ever known. Do you believe that? I'm convinced of that. In fact, the Bible is very clear about that. Jesus regularly depicts the salvation he brings as, as a party feast. Luke 14, 15 through 24. We just studied that just a few weeks ago. It was uh, the title of that weekend's message was Home. And so the Bible certainly talks about that. Jesus regularly depicts the salvation he brings as a party feast. Our final homecoming, new heavens and new earth, will be marked by the ultimate party feast, Isaiah 25, if you want to read about that. And of course, Jesus' parable of the lost sons ends with a party feast cliffhanger. You guys remember that from last weekend? Will the elder brother come into the party at the father's tender pleading? Now, here's what you need to understand is that chapter 15 reveals the father heart of God for you that is out of this world. I think it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, okay? I say that every week, though, don't I? But uh, I really mean it this time. But uh, this is one of the top chapters, one of the top chapters. And there's a couple verses in there, just they're overwhelming to me. But uh, this really reveals the Father heart of God to us. And when I studied this years ago, it, it landed on me in a, in a totally different way. I used to think that the world could be divided into two groups. But actually, this uh, chapter in the Bible tells us that the, the world can be divided into three groups, and all of us are in one of those three groups. You, you have, and it's a, your way of doing life. You have the irreligious, which would be the younger brother. Remember, he gets the inheritance and goes out and throws it away on wild living. So you've got people that are living like that. And then you've got the elder brother, which he leaves the father without leaving the farm. That's the religious I thought that those were the only two groups. And then, and then there's the gospel group. There's the gospel group. And it's really, really important you know the distinction between those three. And we all tend to kind of go back and forth between the groups, whether you realize it or not. And so you need to be aware of that. And so you got the, you got the irreligious, the religious, and then the, and you got the gospel. You can see how the notes are laid out. So, so what are the characteristics of elder brothers? I thought this chapter was too good for us to just to kind of move on, and I wanted to spend an extra week on this chapter. If you didn't get a chance, and you weren't here with us last week, you didn't get a chance to listen to it online, you need to go online and listen to the message from last weekend because we go completely through chapter 15 and explain really the Father heart of God for us. For us. It just, it's out of this world. And I would encourage you to do that or get our DB app and listen to that message. And this week is just, I wanted to add this because I really wanted to take a look at this idea. What are the characteristics of elder brothers? And what are the characteristics, uh, what is the party feast elder brothers miss? And, and this will make sense to you. If you're not even familiar with this story or this parable, it makes sense as we begin to read through the text. But, uh, but that's, that's what we're looking at. Those two questions, what are the characteristics of elder brothers? 
We all have those tendencies. We tend to go from, and oftentimes I've seen the church turn younger brothers into elder brothers within the church, which they totally miss the gospel and it's wrong and it's uh, not what God has for us. And so what are the characteristics of elder brothers and then what is the party feast elder brothers miss? That's what we're gonna look at here and I think our text is very clear about that. We'll pick up our reading in uh, verse 20 of chapter 15 in just a moment. But let's pray first, ask for God's help. And then we'll dive into this text and these notes. God, thank you so much for your presence here this morning. We love you. We absolutely love you. We love you because you first loved us. We come to feast on the abundance of your house and drink from the river of your delights through worship and song and now in scripture. We confess that the default mode of our hearts, like the elder brother in the prodigal son's story, is to turn our relationship with you into an empty, meaningless ritual, routine, or some kind of religion. We pray through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, show us the elder brother characteristics in all of us so that we can repent and join the party feast, the fullness of life that is ours through Christ Jesus. We pray these things in his beautiful name and everyone said... Amen. Take a look at this text. So let me bring you up to speed. If you're not even familiar with this chapter, wonderful chapter. It starts, verse 1, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. That is Jesus. Tax collectors and sinners. Who do the tax collectors and sinners represent in the prodigal son's story? Anybody? They represent the younger brother. The younger brother. So the tax collectors and sinners. So they're all drawing near Jesus. And guess what? The Pharisees and the scribes, who do they represent in the prodigal son's story? Older brother, yes, yes. And so, and the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling. And they're saying, this man receives sinners and even eats with them. They're upset. And so, in rapid fire, you know, progression, Jesus gives three parables to show us the Father heart of God, that these guys are missing it. You don't understand the Father heart of God. And your attitude is totally wrong. And so in in rapid fire progression, he gives three parables. The first one is the parable of the lost sheep. The second one is the parable of the lost coin. And then the third one is the prodigal son. It's known typically as the prodigal son. I prefer to call it the prodigal sons because both sons are lost. In fact, I'm convinced that the younger, the older son is more lost than the younger son. And, um, And you will see that as we kind of walk walk through this, but, but in this story, in the prodigal son's story, the, the younger son asks for his inheritance from his father. Now, to ask for your inheritance while dad is still alive is to wish that he was dead. And in fact, it's to say to your father, I, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. And it's very, very offensive, and yet the, the father heart of, of this daddy gives to his son his inheritance. Now, for a family of two, you got two sons, they would split it up, you know, like this. The older son would receive how much? You guys remember? Two-thirds? Yep. And the younger son would receive one-third. And so we know that the younger son received the one-third. And then we also know in this story, not long after that, he went out, and it says in verse 13, he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine hit. And that's typically what happens. Is that, now listen to me, when we build our life on the temporal and the fleeting, something in creation as opposed to the creator, it's just a matter of time. Famine's gonna hit. Difficult times are gonna hit. It's gonna be knocked out from under you, whether it's your marriage or your family or whatever it might be, it's all temporal and fleeting. This is what goes down in this guy's life. 
He thinks that he can find contentment and meaning in life apart from being with dad on the farm. It's a very great picture of our relationship with God. And of course, famine hits, and before long, he finds himself in the pig pen eating what the pigs eat. This is despicable for a young Hebrew young man. And, and, but there's something that happens while he's in the pig pen. You guys remember what that is? Something happens to him. He's, he comes to his what? He comes to his senses. He comes to his senses. That's what we pray for all of our loved ones and relatives that don't know Jesus, that they would come to their senses. What does it mean to come to your senses? Because while he's in the pig pen, he comes to his senses and he begins to realize the different ways of looking at that. Coming to your senses is realizing that sin, that sin is the suicidal exchange of infinite and eternal pleasures of God with the temporal and fleeting pleasures of this world. That would be one way of looking. He, it just dawns on me, he goes, what am I thinking? What am I doing here? My, my dad's hired hands are taken better care of than what I'm experiencing here, out here on my own. Another way of looking at that would be Romans 1.25 is a great definition of what sin is. Sin is, what we, is, is the exchanging, it's what we do is when we exchange the truth of God for a lie and we worship and serve created things more than the creator. So the younger son thinks that he's going to find greater happiness, meaning, hope um, in creation rather than the creator. That's the picture that we get from this story. Another definition of this, coming to your senses, and you've heard me use this many times before, Jeremiah 2.13. So sin is the suicidal exchange of the fountain of living water, Christ, for broken cisterns, broken wells that don't actually satisfy. Maybe for a little while. They're, They're fleeting, though. They're temporal. So that's where he comes to his senses. He begins to rehearse this speech. I know what I'll do. I'll tell my dad I'll be one of his hired hands. I'll try to earn it back, and I'll try to pay him back for all of this. Now here's... In this favorite chapter, here's one of my favorite verses right here, verse 20. This is where we pick up the reading. Man, it's about time, huh? Finally got to the reading of it. Verse 20, and he arose, this is the younger son, and he arose, and he came to his father. I want you to listen to these words. I love these words. I absolutely love these words. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Oh my goodness. I've never been able to get over those words. He smothered him. He smothered him with affection. Amazing. Revelation of the Father heart of God towards younger brothers. Now in a minute we're going to see the revelation of the Father heart of God to elder brothers. It's just as amazing. It's unbelievable. All showing us the heart of God for you and I. Because we all tend to be in one of those two categories before we come to faith through the gospel. We either, we're either younger brothers or elder brothers. And we all, we all need the gospel and so and so in verse 21, and, and, and the son said to him, so the son begins to recite this speech that he's going to give to his father. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And then 
The father just cuts him off right in mid-sentence. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. The best robe was the father's robe. And put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard, heard music and dancing, and, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your younger, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Now, now stop there just for a minute. This would be the normal response of a should be a healthy response. This would be the healthy response of an elder brother. What? My brother's back? Oh my goodness, that's incredible. Fantastic. Oh man, I can't hardly wait to get to the party. That would be the, that would be the healthy response. Yeah, okay, well, he threw part of our inheritance away. We can get more of that. He's back. He's more important than all the money in the world. That would be the, the normal and the healthy response. But that's not how he responds. Verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out, and here we have the revelation of the father heart of God for the elder brother, and entreated him. The words literally mean tenderly pleading with him. But he answered his father, look, very disrespectful, doesn't even refer to him as father. He says, look, almost like look here, hey you. These many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, don't even call him his brother, this son of yours, I don't claim him, when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now here's my second, it's, it's the second favorite in this chapter. Second favorite verse in this chapter, dad's response. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. If you could understand, if you could take that and begin to think out the implications of that one verse as it relates to you and your father in heaven, his heart towards you, game over. It would chase away all the inordinate anxiety, anger, and depression in your life, I guarantee you. We, we just don't know that. We're not living in the reality. It might be a concept that he's always with me, my, my father, my father in heaven's always with me, and all that, is, all that is his is mine? That's amazing. That's, that's beyond our wildest dreams, really understanding that and living out the implications of that. And it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord to us. So cliffhanger ending, will the family unite in love and celebration? Is the, is the, younger, is the older brother gonna come into the party? We don't know. So that's why I wanted to spend an extra week on this and really take a look at this study. So what are the characteristics of elder brothers? And I can give you these characteristics because this is what I've struggled with for years. That's me. I never did the, the, the younger brother gig. I never went out and lived wild and crazy and did stuff like that. I didn't do that any stuff. But I was the elder brother that left the father without leaving the farm. And when this got a hold of me a number of years ago, it was transforming. It transformed my heart. 
So that's why I'm a professional here, elder brother, okay? So I, I can give you the characteristics, and so, uh, and I'm sure you'll be able to see some of your characteristics too, but there's a tendency we can kind of go back and forth between these two, younger brother, elder brother, younger brother, elder brother, until we land in the gospel, and sometimes even in the gospel, we tend to go back to, to one or the other. But, uh, but this will show you elder brother characteristics, and then we'll finish up by looking at the gospel, because that's really what, what the party feast uh, that the elder brother missed was the gospel, understanding what the gospel is. So let's walk through these things. First of all, here's a warning. Don't become a Pharisee about the Pharisees. Did you, is that on your notes, by the way? Yeah, okay. Don't, don't be a Pharisee about the Pharisees. So it's so easy for us to analyze uh, Pharisees and then become a Pharisee in analyzing the Pharisees. Does that make sense? We cop an attitude like, oh, how dare him. He's, that's terrible. Oh, he's, oh, he's horrible. Oh, oh yeah. Oh. And we get holier than thou just in responding to that. We, I see that all the time in people. As they look down on other people, they're becoming the very people that they're you know, being, uh, being upset about. And, and, and so make sure you don't do that because listen, the father doesn't do that. Did you notice that? That the father doesn't become, a, become an elder brother to the elder brother because he entreats him, tenderly pleading, and he just, he speaks truth to him, but it's, oh my goodness, it's just filled with, with compassion and affection. And it's, it's amazing. So, so beware of that as we work through this. Here's the first one, it's bitterness. These are gonna hurt as you walk through these because I'm sure that all of us will have a little bit of elder brother in all of us, a little bit of this. And so, first one is bitterness, undercurrent of anger toward life circumstances. So bitterness, undercurrent of anger in life uh, circumstances. And I didn't put the verses next to those, so let me give them to you as we walk through it. This is based on verse 29, I'll read it to you. But he answered his father, this is the elder brother, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. I don't like the way life's going right now and I work my butt off for you. That's what he's saying. I can say that in church, can I? Okay. I almost, I kind of have, what am I about to say here? Am I gonna say a wrong word? So I had to, okay, so if I pause long, I'm thinking about what I'm about to say. Sometimes I don't even think about what I'm gonna say, okay? So... You just get what comes out, sorry. But uh, well, I try to clean it up between services. This is why the third service. <laughs> here's the third service. It's all cleaned up by now. Maybe not, you never know. Depends on how much coffee I've had. But uh, I mean, this is, this is fascinating here. Undercurrent of anger toward life circumstances. He's upset. Elder brothers believe that if you live a good life, you deserve a good life. So if I live a virtuous, moral life, I deserve a good life. See, if you're living up to moral standards and life doesn't go well, this is how I've seen, I've seen Christians respond like this. I've seen a lot of Christians respond like this. Man, I can't believe I can't believe that this would happen to me. I can't believe that God would do this to me. I, I've gone to church my whole life. I've read my Bible. I've dropped money in the box. I'm even part of a small group. And this kind of stuff happens to me. What good is the Christian life? Oh, my goodness. That sounds like an elder brother to me. Like you missed you miss the whole point of what, what it's all about. See, the good life for the elder brother is lived not for the delight of good deeds themselves or for the glory of God and the good of people, but it, but it is lived as a calculated way to control their circumstances to eliminate pain and problems. It's morality that is self-serving. Morality that is self-serving, not God-glorifying. Not only that, you don't even understand what the scripture says about 
that even the righteous are going to suffer. Jesus told his disciples, uh, 16th chapter of John, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. Take heart, I've overcome the world. It's going gonna, it's gonna to get hard for you. So the elder brothers aren't living in the reality of that. They think somehow that because I've lived a good life, I deserve good things to happen to me. That's not going to always work out that way, and you've got to be okay with that. And that's part of that bitterness, that undercurrent of anger that, uh, toward life circumstances. Here's another thing is the unforgiveness. It's unforgiveness. Hold grudges long and bitterly. Notice in verse, this is based on verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in. I'm not going to that party. I'm not going to that stupid party if that person's going to be there. What, do you have some unforgiveness? Well, no. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't even want to be around them. That's, that's the attitude. It's unforgiveness. Holds grudges long and bitterly. He wasted half of our inheritance or a third of it. And he's lowered our status in the community because of it. He's a despicable human being. That's the attitude of the elder brother. It is impossible to forgive someone you feel superior to. It is impossible to forgive someone you feel superior to. What's going on in this elder brother's heart? He's saying in his heart, I would have never done anything like that. This is so despicable, but little does this elder brother know It's been a while since he's examined his own heart. He doesn't understand the sinfulness in his own heart. He has the seeds of that same kind of actions that were in the younger brother that are in his heart. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So he doesn't understand that. And that's typically where that attitude comes. It's because he's out of touch with the sinfulness of his own heart. Here's what I've learned through the years. It took me a while to get to this point. Forgiven people are forgiving people. Forgiven people are forgiving people. Man, when you understand how much Jesus and God has forgiven you, you're going to be a forgiving person. Unforgiving people are not living in the reality of how much God has forgiven them. Now, listen, I understand. We all take hits. Some of you have taken harder hits than than others, and they're, they're horrible, the hits that you've taken, and yet, and I know that you, you just can't overnight just forgive someone, it's going to take some time, but I'm telling you that you got to come back to the cross and realize how much he's forgiven you, and have your heart filled up with how much he's forgiven you so that you can begin to forgive others. I mean, so how much has he forgiven you? When you look at the cross, there's a couple of things that should come to mind, that you're incredibly loved, but also you're an incredible sinner because you were so sinful, Jesus had to die for you. There's no other way for you to be reconciled to the Father. And you were headed for an eternal separation from God. It's called hell. And yet Jesus stepped in and took the blame for all of your sins on himself. So, he has, so what he has forgiven you is so much more, so much more, listen to me, so much more than you'll ever, ever forgive anybody else. We just don't live in the reality of that. I'm not saying it's easy. That's hard. I had a guy did something to me. It took me almost a year to work through forgiveness for him and not wanting to go over there and hurt him. You ever feel like that? It's like, I think I could take him out. I'd like to take him out. Not for dinner. (laughs) Take him out for something else. Yeah, so... I mean, so I've 
It takes some time. It takes some time, but, but you, gotta, you go back to the cross. You gotta go back to the cross. Go back to the cross. Superiority. So you got bitterness, unforgiveness, superiority. You look down at people of other races, religions, and lifestyle. This is the, the root of all racism in America today. You know what we need? Well, you know what the solution is to our racism? What's the solution to our racism? It's the gospel. It's Jesus. That's what it is. And uh, this is the, it's superiority. That's the attitude that drives racism. It's based on verse 30. It says, but when this son of yours came, and he doesn't even call him his brother, who has devoured your property with prostitutes. Oh, my goodness. I mean, so there's this, this attitude of superiority. Now, what creates this superiority? This is what creates this superiority. We all kind of struggle with this a bit. If I don't get my identity from the creator, I will inevitably get it from creation, something in creation. And through competitive comparison, it will either inflate me or deflate me based on how well I'm doing. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. It's just like uh, in the early years of Desert Breeze, I would go to these pastor's conferences, and I don't know why these dudes always do this, and I now go to different conferences, and most of the guys don't ask this question. But in the early days, they would ask this question, how big is your church? How big is your church? Oh, it's like, what the heck? So, so size of church defines success, and somehow that inflates. Does that inflate you? Well, then you get your identity is misplaced. And, and so there was, it was so easy for me to like, like the guy's asking me. I know he's going to ask me, so what am I going to say? What am I going to say? Um, thousands, that's what my church, that's the size of my church. You know, or just, you know, you, you kind of fudge it a little bit to try to make yourself feel, and I started thinking, wait a minute, that's ridiculous. My identity's not based on that. My identity is based on Christ and him crucified for me. It doesn't matter what size this church is. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. My identity is secure in him. And so, by the way, we all do that. So what we do is if we're not coming to the cross and coming to Christ and getting our sense of identity, our sense of acceptance, security, and significance, we're gonna get it through our kids, the success or failure of our kids. By the way, you know, you know where your sense of identity is based on how much it inflates you and turns you into this kind of superior kind of person around certain people, or it deflates you when it's not going so well. What are the things in your life that inflate you and deflate you? See, the success of those things will go to your head. The failure of those things will go to your heart. And, and so when, what, what devastates you? It's one thing to be sorrowful because maybe your kids aren't doing so well, but if you're in despair, that's your identity. Or if your job's not going so well or, or any number of things. So it gives you an opportunity to say, wait a minute, I've misplaced my identity. I can put my identity in Christ. But it's almost kind of this pecking order that we have here in America today. So through competitive comparison, it will either inflate or deflate based on how well that might be, whatever it is. It's because we're getting our identity out of something in creation as opposed to the creator, and that's that superiority. This guy was a moralist. He was a moral person, and I'm better than my brother on his morality, and I'm a better person. My doctrine, I've even heard this where churches will say, well, our doctrine's better than their doctrine. They don't even know what they're talking about down the street. Are they, and, and, you know, of course, are they Christians? Are they preaching the gospel? Okay. Yeah, none of us are going to have our perfect doctrine. We're all kind of working through that. But don't make that part of your sense of identity. Christ is your identity and who he is and what he's done for you. Okay, enough of that. Next one is moralistic. So bitterness, unforgiveness, superiority. And these are all kind of inter, interwoven, interrelated, all kind of tied together, work together. Moralistic. Life is a joyless, crushing drudgery motivated by fear and or pride. 
Verse 29 is based on of our text, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Here's what I want you to do real quick. Turn to the person next to you. You guys should know this. Pop quiz time, okay? Those of you that have been hanging out with us, you know the difference. You should know the difference. Most people don't know the difference. And in fact, most people, when you invite them to come to Christ and become a Christian, they immediately think in their mind, moralism. They wouldn't define it, they wouldn't call it that, but that's how they would define it if you were to ask them. What does it mean to become a Christian? They would define it as moralism. So here's my question for you. Discuss it with the folks sitting around you real quick. What's the difference between moralism and the gospel? What's the difference between moralism and the gospel? Real quick, do that. Okay, you guys getting it? You guys got it down? You guys should have it down because you need to be able to explain the difference because listen, this is, this is the major difference between all the major cults and, and religions of our world compared to Christianity. You, you guys knew that because if someone comes up to you and says, well, what makes Christianity different from every other belief system? Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, whatever it is, everything else is moralism. Christianity is, is gospel, it's grace. Moralism is I obey, therefore God accepts me. Here's the punch list, hit it, do it, and do it good, and then maybe God will accept you. That's moralism. The gospel is God accepts me through Christ, therefore I obey. It's preemptive love. He comes after me with his love. You see it in this daddy's heart in this story of chapter 15. He comes after those boys. He loves those boys. That's what our daddy does for us. He comes after us. He loves us. It's his preemptive love. He comes and he pours his love into our heart, and we're stunned by his grace and his goodness, and it transforms us. And of course we want to honor him. We want to obey him. Why wouldn't we? That's ridiculous not to. It's a response to all that we have in him. And uh, let me give you a verse here. I've given you verses on each one of these. You can study them on your own, in your own personal time, or also in your uh, life groups. But 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So we're responding to his love for us. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Why is that? Because he empowers us with his presence. So not only he, he accepts us, he accepts us. So, so he, check this out. This is what's so cool about the gospel. He, he loves you not because you're lovable, okay? Sorry. I'm sorry. I hate to break the news to you. He doesn't love you because you're lovable, but in order to make you lovable. And it says you get to know his love for you. It begins to transform your life. That's, that would, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. It's also ritualistic. Elder brothers are ritualistic. Bitterness, unforgiveness, superiority, moralistic, ritualistic. Little or no awe and wonder in their intimacy with God. This is based on 31. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. You are always with me and all that is mine is yours. That is amazing. You are always with me. I'm always with you. You're always with me. You'll never leave me or forsake me. Nothing can separate me from your love. And all that is yours is mine. My daddy owns the place, owns the world, is in control. I can trust his loving, wise control of my life. Yes, 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 yes. (laughs) Yes. 
It's amazing. See, this elder brother had left the father without leaving the farm. I did that many years ago. There's a major difference between reading your Bible, praying, and going to church like items on a to-do list rather than craving rather than craving a glimpse of the only one who can satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. I mean, are you here today and just, you're just kind of checking it off the list or do you, did you come to have an encounter with the creator of the universe and to know him and to experience him? And then that's gonna obviously create some insecurity. There's major insecurity in this elder brother. His attitude, when you see people that are coming after you and angry and upset and all that, there's some major insecurity going on in their life. Little assurance of God's love making them sensitive to criticism and rejection. I mean, I, I, I spent a couple decades with that in, in my marriage relationship and just in life in general, just very defensive when people criticized me and any number of things. And, Little did I know I was not resting in his love for me. I didn't know that. It wasn't a reality. I could talk about it and tell people about it. I wasn't living it because it was evidenced through my being sensitive to criticism and rejection. Oh, my goodness. Why would I be sensitive to criticism and rejection when I have the God of the galaxies who loves me, gave his life for me? He delights in me. I was just reading this morning, uh, I was, uh, Proverbs 3 that our father disciplines us as a father disciplines his son in whom he delights in. I thought that landed on me, delight, he delights in me. Oh, that's why some difficult things happen in my life because it's part of his discipline to draw my heart back to him and to develop my character. But he delights in me? Yes. Absolutely. I love what it says. Verse 31, it says, and he said to him, son, Literally, Greek, my child, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. See, the more you hear those words ringing in your soul, the less you'll be sensitive to criticism and rejection. By the way, when you find yourself responding negatively to criticism and rejection, that's opportunity, opportunity to run, run to your father, to find that security that can only be found ultimately only in him. His love, his love can become more real to you than the love of anyone else. Did you know that? His love, his love for you can be more real to you than the love of anybody else. Think of the person that, that you would say loves you the most, that you felt their love more than anything. Well, his love, God's love for you can be even greater than that. And when his love becomes more real to you than anyone else. It will delight you, console you, strengthen you, lift you up, and free you from fear like nothing else, like nothing else. I'm kind of getting into the, the party feast that the elder brother misses, but that's, that's part of that, under, understanding the security. And then disgust. Fierce and merciless, sanctimonious condemning of others. Now, let me ask you this. Don't you hear that when you turn on the news, whether you're listening to a kind of a, a newscast that's kind of slanted towards Democrats versus the newscasts that are slanted towards Republicans? Don't you hear kind of that attitude come through, this disgust, fierce and merciless, sanctimonious condemning of others? It's very much an elder brother kind of an attitude, verse 30. But when this son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him... Now, now, let me explain something as we walk through this because we're about ready to transition here and go into the next part. 
But, but it doesn't mean, when we talk about dealing with this attitude of disgust, it doesn't mean that you should never criticize, and I'm using that in a positive way, criticize. Uh, I'm talking discern and evaluate someone for behaving and believing badly. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't do that. There, you, should, you should do that. There are times when you, uh, you criticize, you, you discern and evaluate someone's beliefs and behavior that it's, that's bad. That's appropriate. I'm talking about the difference between criticism in a positive way and condemnation. The difference between criticizing and condemning is mainly attitude. And the reason why I say that is because Matthew 7, 1 through 2, it actually says, it's a, it's a favorite verse of a, a lot of folks. A lot of people don't even really know the Bible. They can at least quote this verse. You guys know what that verse is? Judge not, lest ye be judged. Even non-believers know that one. <laughs> Judge not. Don't be judging me. It's like, that's, you understand what that means? That means don't condemn me. But it doesn't say don't criticize me. You can criticize me. But because the Bible talks about there's a level of criticism that's healthy and that's important. Once again, criticism meaning discernment and evaluation. But what, it, but what the, the scripture teaches is this means our attitude shouldn't be one of disgust, fierce and merciless, sanctimonious condemning of others. It should be treating every person in every encounter as an infinitely precious being in the image of God, never demeaning or condescending in any way, but being so melt in your mouth sweet that though they may disagree with you, they cannot deny your love for them. Does that make sense? Let me say that again. That means that, guess what? We're gonna probably disagree on things, but it would be wrong for me to be like an elder brother and condemn you I can, I can critique you, you can critique me, we need that, that's healthy, but we're gonna do it with such a melt-in-your-mouth sweetness that when we walk away, I'm gonna be convinced that you love me and you're gonna be convinced that I love you. And though we disagree, we disagree. But there's something that's much bigger here. That's the point that I'm trying to make. So I'm not, just, I'm not saying that you just don't criticize anybody because, by the way, the father criticizes the elder son, but he does it in a loving way. Doesn't he? Doesn't he say... He comes out and tenderly begins to plead with him, and he says, I'm always with you, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Do you hear the criticism of the father? Son, you're not thinking clearly here. This was appropriate, but he's doing it with such tenderness and love. Okay. Now, let me read a story, and then we'll transition. There's a little part I want to read just to make sure before we move on to the next, but here's a story from Philip Yancey. He begins his, uh, he begins his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, with a story he heard from a friend. A prostitute came to me in wretched straits, homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Through sobs and tears, she told me the horrific details of what she did to earn money. She had to do it, she said, to support her own drug habit. I could hardly bear hearing her sordid story. At last, I asked if she had ever thought of going to a church for help, and I will never forget the look of pure, naive shock that crossed her face. Church! She cried, why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. 
Why is it that in ancient times, women like this so often ran toward Jesus, where in our day, they so often run from his followers? And I think it's because too often we are more like the elder brother than Jesus. Now, read this next part. Next part. So it's a terrible picture of the religious, elder brother, Pharisee, and scribes. That's verse 2 of Luke 15. The irreligious path of the younger brother, the tax collectors and sinners, verse 1, is not a better alternative. So we're not talking that. So those aren't two, two good choices. In fact, though most people don't find themselves at the extreme places of the younger and elder brother, nonetheless, this is important, each of their approaches to life has the seeds of its own destruction taking you in that direction and keeping you from the Father's party feast. It keeps you from the gospel and experiencing all that God has for us. Once again, there's only three ways to live, religion, irreligion, or the gospel. Here's the gospel. What is the party feast elder brothers miss? Here's the first one, number one. It's historical. It's historical. It is good news about what God has done to make us right with him. So it goes back to this whole idea of moralism. And once again, this is what separates Christianity from every major cult and religion of our world today. Every major cult will give you good advice. Good advice at what you must do to be right with God. The gospel is good news about what God has done. D-O-N-E, it's done. What God has done to make us right with him. We're right with him. By grace through faith in Christ, you are right. You are right with God. You have everything you need in God. You have access into the throne room of God. You have intimacy with God. The best thing about the Christian life, this is what I love the best about the Christian life, is intimacy with God. Is intimacy with God. Intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality. Intimacy with God is an enchanted reality in a disenchanted world oh my goodness, there's nothing quite like intimacy with God. And we have that. Nothing's keeping you back from intimacy with God except for, except for unbelief or idolatry. Idolatry is, is loving anything more than you would love God. That, those are the things that would keep you from that, but, but that's provided for us through Jesus Christ. It's been done. It's been done for us. And so the gospel is an announcement of something that has, been, that has happened in history that changes your status forever. It's also experiential. Don't miss the next part of this. So it's historical. So it's historical and it's experiential. It is a hard experience based on the objective truths of God's word. A feast is a place where our appetites and our senses of sight, smell, sound, and taste are filled up. Here's what I want you to do this real quick. Turn to the person next to you and ask them. See if they know. This is another pop quiz. Here we go. Uh, See if they know the answer to this question. What was the very first miracle of Jesus? Very first miracle of Jesus. Real quick, do that. Okay, what was it? What was it? Water and wine. wine. How many thinking water and wine? Okay, the, the bigger question is why? 
I mean, I mean, that's crazy. I mean, when you think about it, it's like, that's the inauguration of his ministry. Okay, Jesus, now we're going to start your ministry and let's, let's start it big. Let's start it big. Water into wine? Whoa, what was that about? And so what's interesting about this, and that's found in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Jesus performed that very first miracle, and John, the gospel writer, calls this miracle a sign a signifier of what Jesus' ministry was all about. So, so follow me here just a moment. Jesus turned 150 gallons of water into superb wine in order to keep the party going. <laughs> is that crazy or what? Wine is a symbol of joy in the scripture. Uh, Psalm 105 15 makes that very clear. So, so Jesus, what this is telling us is that Jesus is the Lord of the party feast and has come not just to pardon sin, but to fill our lives with indescribable and indestructible joy. That's why I love, I've always loved uh, 1 Peter 1, 8, where it says, Peter's talking to second generation Christians, second generation that is, these folks didn't see Jesus as Peter did. And he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with in, indescribable and glorious joy. Indescribable, indestructible joy. Indestructible joy. Indescribable joy. I, had, I have those moments. I had one this morning before I, I came in and uh, I was listening to some worship music and just really connecting with God. I had, those, I had one of those moments where it was just, it was indescribable. It overwhelmed me. I began to just weep. I was so overwhelmed with the presence of God, just the, the sense of his presence and the joy. And I'll tell you what, there was no amount of suffering that could have ever pulled that away. And that's what that means, indescribable, indestructible, that there's no amount of suffering that can ever take that away from you. And it's an experience. See, the gospel is not just objective and legal, but also subjective and experiential. That's why uh, Psalm 34.8, anybody know what Psalm 34.8 is? Taste and see that the Lord is good. The Bible uses sensory language about our salvation. That's why I like what Jonathan Edwards says uh, in his famous sermon, A Divine and Supernatural Light. He says this, there is a difference between believing that God is holy and gracious, so you believe that, and having a new sense on the heart of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. He's talking about a, the connection between one thing to know it here, it's another thing to experience it in your heart. The difference between believing that God is gracious and tasting that God is gracious is as different as having a relational, a, a rational belief that honey is sweet, a rational belief that honey is sweet, and having the actual sense of its sweetness. So what he's saying is that it's one thing to know, oh yeah, honey's sweet, yeah, I know, we all know that honey's sweet, but to have the sweetness on your tongue, to experience that sweetness, that's what he's talking about here. I mentioned it last week, uh, if you only knew the Father heart of God for you, if you only knew what he thought, thought about you, how he feels about you, what he wants to do in and through your life. Oh my goodness. But it's got to be more than a concept. I mean, it changes everything. Game over. Game over. When you have that, when you experience that, it's not a concept. It's a reality in your heart. And so that's part of the party feast of the gospel. It's historical. It's experiential. But it's also personal. It is feeding ourselves daily on the gospel, appropriating it, making it more and more central to everything we see, think, and feel. Okay, after you fill in the blank, take a look up here. You got to get this because a lot of people, they think, oh, the gospel, ABCs, 
Move on, move on. There's much deeper truths out there than just the gospel. Uh-uh. No, the gospel is, is, is not the ABCs. It's the A to Z. You don't go beyond the gospel. You go deeper into the gospel. Better yet, the gospel goes deeper into you into your heart. It gets a hold of your heart. That's what you need. All of our problems, all of our difficulties is, is due to the fact that that gospel is not deep enough in our heart. Part of our, our being, our treasure, who we are, our identity, that's what we need more than anything. That's why we talked about that a number of weeks ago in Luke 8, 4 through 15, the parable of the sower. And so, so here's what we need. Let me give you three illustrations. I gave them uh, last night, and a lot of folks didn't really understand what I was talking about, so somebody yelled out from the congregation, uh, say, hey, we don't understand that, and so we had to throw that person out of the church. And, uh, <laughs> and so I don't want that to happen to you here this morning, okay? No, we didn't throw them out, and I said, okay, let me explain. Does anybody else not understand this? And everybody in there was like, we don't understand what you're talking about. I said, have you guys been feeling like that throughout this whole message? They go, yes. I go, oh, my goodness, so I have to start all over? <laughs> No, I don't, so let's go right here. Let me, this is what I'm talking about, personal. It is feeding ourselves daily on the gospel, appropriating it, making it more and more central to everything we see, think, and feel. So it's not, it's not parenting seminars that make you a better parent as much as, as understanding the father heart of God and how he parents rebels like us. It's not self-help and how-to. This is not self-help how-to. Because what happens oftentimes in the church is that we take younger brothers and turn them into elder brothers. We haven't changed what is fundamentally wrong with all of us in self-centeredness. And it's only, it's only Christ and the gospel that can do that. See, we can, we can motivate people out of fear and pride. That's, that's morally restrained will. But it's, a, it's the supernatural transformation of our heart through love. Here's another example of that. It's not marriage seminars that make you a better spouse as much as understanding the spousal love of Jesus giving his life for us. See, our, our seminars, I know taught by the Trucellas, do a fabulous job at keeping it gospel-centered because they understand it's really about Christ. And I know that uh, Matt and Deborah, along with Nancy and I, we realized more than anything, especially Matt and I realized this, is that when the words of the Apostle Paul found in the fifth chapter of Ephesians lands on you as a husband. You become the kind of husband you need to be. Those words that are found in the fifth chapter, verse 25, it says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. When that landed on me, it changed me. I became a different husband. He loves me how much? That much? Oh my goodness, of course I wanna love my wife. I want that to overflow in my life to my wife. It's not seminars on money that make you a more generous person as much as an understanding of how Jesus became poor so that we might become rich in him. Here's the next one. It's relational. We're almost finished. So historical, experiential, personal, relational is deep involvement in a community of other believers where you experience the joy of knowing and being known and loving and being loved. Party feasts are relational by nature. There is... Did you notice this? With all three of these parables, there is something lost, something found, and then what is, what's at the end? Celebration. Not just with the individual, but they're, they're calling in their family and their neighbors, and they're just wanting to share it with everybody, and that's, that's normal with the gospel. So community is what we were created for. Our need for community with people and the God who made us is, is to us spiritually and emotionally what food, water, and air are to us physically. There is no way 
you will be able to grow spiritually apart from deep involvement in a community of other believers. There's no way. You've got to take it beyond what we do here on weekend services. This is the catalyst for life change. You've got to connect with others at a much deeper level than what we connect here. We call them life groups here. In fact, you've heard us say the statement many times before, Desert Breeze is a place where strangers become friends and friends become family. Yeah. And life change happens best where? Small groups. Small groups. Get in one of our small groups, start your own small group, come to our connection party next weekend and be a part of that whole process. But that's a, that's a necessity to not just your survival, but thrive, thriving, thriving in the Christian life. And then physical, it is, it is a sensitive social conscience. So this is the physical part of the gospel. It is a sensitive social conscience and a life poured out, not just to meet the spiritual and emotional, but also the physical needs of others. Matthew 25, 34 through 40, Jesus is showing us that the inevitable sign that you are a sinner saved by grace, that you're actually a Christian, is a sensitive social conscience. You wanna meet the needs of others, not just spiritual and emotional, but physical needs. Younger brothers are too selfish. Elder, elder brothers are too self-righteous. So Jesus not only proclaimed the gospel, but also demonstrated it through healing the sick, feeding the hungry, and being a friend of sinners. He was a friend of sinners. We, we came full circle now. Luke 15 says, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him. I'm going to end with a story. This is a classic DB story. It's been a while since I've shared this story on a weekend service. I usually save this for our game of life. If you, if you haven't gone through game of life yet, I'd encourage you to sign up because we're going to be kicking it off here in a couple weeks. But this is one of our game of life stories. It's called The Party of Grace and Love. I think it's a good, good way to end uh, this uh, teaching this weekend, these last two weekends in chapter uh, 15 of Luke. This story by Tony Campolo took place while he was traveling in Hawaii. And because of jet lag, he had a lot of jet lag, at, at three in the morning, I wandered into a diner. The only other customers were a group of prostitutes who had finished for the night, one of whom, Agnes, mentioned that tomorrow was her birthday and that she had never in her life had a birthday party. After they left, I found out from Harry, the guy behind the counter, that they came in each night to this diner. I asked if I could come back the next night and throw a party. Harry said, okay. At 2.30 the next morning, I was back. I had made a sign that read, happy birthday, Agnes, exclamation mark. But by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. It was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. At 3.30, the door of the diner swung open, in came Agnes, and we all screamed, happy birthday! Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted. When we finished singing, her eyes moistened. When the cake was carried out, she started to cry. Harry gruffly mumbled, Cut, cut the cake, Agnes. We all want some cake. Look, Harry, is it okay if I keep the cake a little while? Sure, sure. Take, take the cake home if you want. She carried that cake out the door like it was the Holy Grail. 
We stood there motionless, a stunned silence in the place. Not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, what do you say we pray? Looking back on it now, it seems more than strange for a sociologist to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But then it just felt like the right thing to do. I prayed for Agnes, for her salvation, that her life would be changed, that God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry said, hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. Harry waited a moment and answered, no, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. And that's the kind of church Jesus came to create. Let's pray. So, Father, may, may Desert Breeze be that kind of church. A church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. May we be a place where younger brothers are welcomed and redeemed and elder brothers are softened and repent as we believe the gospel, rest in Jesus' work, and enjoy the Father heart of God for us that satisfies our souls and liberates our lives like nothing else. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful and holy name. And everyone said, amen. Love you guys.